Welcome to this presentation. Mr. Berry, he is a graduate of Mackinac College of the U.S. Oxford. So welcome back home. More recently, he has taken over it as the vice chairperson of Niti I.O. For those of you who know India, you know the Niti I.O. is the top economic policy think tank, the government of India. Mr. Berry reports directly to the Prime Minister himself and has the rank of cabinet minister in the government. Then the entire organization is very, very interesting in the direction of the country. So he has really a very deep insights into what is happening in the country today and the role of India in the future. So we're all looking forward to hearing some of that from him today. In particular, I think the timing is interesting because India has just taken over the presidency of the G20. And this is a very historic um, moment for India. I think it's also a very interesting time in the history of the world when a large emerging country like India takes over the presidency. What will India's contribution be in that role? How will India, in fact, how it make the world a better place is something which just followed the agenda for the Prime Minister himself. I was actually in Gandhinagar recently for the B20 inception meeting, and it was very clear that there's a huge amount of excitement in the country, ambition about doing good, and certainly would like to hear, him, hear from him a bit about these issues. Mr. Berry has a long CV, so I will not read all the details, but he has served as a member of the Prime Minister, the Economic Advisory Council before, India's Statistical Commission, and the Reserve Bank of India's Technical Advisory Committee on Monetary Policy. He has commented extensively in the media on economic issues and contributes a monthly column of a business newspaper. Welcome, Mr. Barry. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments, and then we'll have an informal discussion. Thank you, Dean Nadvatna. Thank you for that welcome. And uh, thank you to, for, to you and your staff for organizing this, but let me also acknowledge uh, the role that I know that Lord Billamoria played in making this possible, and I'm very pleased that Lord Billamoria will join our conversation later, and also I'm grateful to him for having uh, very expertly steered a, a meeting at the House of Lords the other day. Thank you, sir. Um, so um, the focus here, uh, as has been uh, indicated will be uh, on the G20 and older also India's economic um, uh, outlook. But uh, I uh, uh, would, would like to uh, uh, start by flagging some uh, important messages about uh, India's economic trajectory and also its relationship with the UK, even while recognizing that much of the student body at the side business school is is global and um, and multinational so where is india at the moment um it's a uh, slightly amazingly um uh, given that it had to deal with covid and uh, given that the war um in um, in ukraine uh, uh, it is a, a bright spot in the global economy we can talk about how it ended up there um, but uh, it is expected to be uh, one of the fastest growing uh, economies uh, in, in the world today. Uh, uh, what that reflects is a, uh, a series of a wide, uh, um, wide, successful. Wide-ranging um, um, uh, structural and governance reforms, some of which I will um, um, will cover. In in particular, uh, there's been a paradigm shift in public service delivery and implementation of government schemes and infrastructure projects in India, which have been responsible for its sustainable, inclusively inclusive growth. And um, perhaps of interest to, to, to the side Business School, um, it's emerged as a preferred investment destination 
uh, owing to many characteristics, strong democracy, political stability, uh, business-friendly uh, policies. Now, um, Didotta had uh, talked about Niti Aayog's role in the Indian governance system. Just a word or two on that. Um, uh, the Niti Aayog replaced uh, the Planning Commission, which was an institution set up by Prime Minister Nehru in uh, 1950. Uh, and this was a decision of Prime Minister Modi when he took over in uh, 2014. Niti Aayog uh, was formally established on the 1st of uh, January 2015. Uh, and uh, it plays a variety of roles, but the one I want to showcase here is that it is a very important intermediary between the uh, the government at the center, what we call the union government, and uh, the states. And uh, an important message or an important takeaway I'd like to leave uh, with this uh, audience, and particularly those who I uh, think have tuned in, tuned in offline, offline uh, online, sorry, is that uh, India states are uh, are very important, and uh, for India's um, development, but uh, they are also very consequential. So, some of you would know, but others might not, that our largest <clears throat> state in terms of population, uh, the uh, uh, Uttar Pradesh, it has the population of Brazil, um, uh, well, um, uh, uh, a dynamic state in the south, Tamil Nadu, has the same population as Germany, uh, Karnataka, the same population as, uh, thank you, as the UK, um, the dry uh, mouth, uh, and um, it's not uh, too far out to basically say that um, India's aspirations and India's growth uh, depend on what happens on the st in the states. Yes, the union government uh, sets national policies, but many of the things that make for um, industrial development, quality of life, particularly urbanization, um, uh, the investment climate, these vary from state to state. So just as a background for India before we get into uh, the G20 and its aspiration is for you to uh, be aware that uh, India, other than representing one-fifth of humanity, has a lot of diversity within. And indeed, a lot of Neeti's role and the role of the union government is uh, to manage this diversity of states within a, um, a, a vibrant democracy. And let me stress that third point, uh, that India is a stable democracy uh, and a popular government, uh, despite the diversity uh, we have had, we will have had by next year, five full-term, uh, uh, five-year governments, that is, uh, at the center, 25 years. And that kind of stability uh, matters uh, for investors, for, uh, for the quality of life. And this is despite fiercely competitive elections. I'm talking now only of the parliamentary elections, but the turnout rate at about 66% is high, certainly by the comparison with uh, a country like the United States, I don't know what uh, turnout rates are like um, in, in the UK, but we're talking about a, uh, an electoral system that uh, uh, is used actively by 540 million people, um, and uh, the total electorate would therefore be about 800 million, and a female voter turnout of 65% or so, um, Eighty-five percent of uh, people have expressed in a uh, Pew survey 
expressed trust in the national government and a recent survey by uh, a, a company called Morning Consult that was reported in the press is that uh, Prime Minister Modi has an approval rating of 78%, highest among the 22 surveyed nations. Um, and um, this town, Oxford, uh, 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 is responsible for something that's called the uh, multidimensional poverty index, which um, uh, uh, is richer than just uh, the usual poverty line indices, and that it includes things like health and uh, education as well. And measured by that in, uh, indicator, uh, 415 million people escaped poverty between 2005-06 and 2019-21. Uh, um, now, these are dry numbers, but uh, uh, what I just want to signal, and we can get into uh, the details later because I do want to focus on the G20, uh, that uh, they represent a quantum leap in the capacity of uh, the present government, um, but uh, starting with its predecessor government, uh, to deliver so uh, social services of various kinds at scale. And this has made, been made possible through the very imaginative and aggressive use of technology on public platforms. That, in turn, was facilitated by uh, the decision uh, which uh, by the Modi government in 2014 to embrace an initiative uh, launched under its predecessor uh, of uh, uh, universalizing the uh, what's called the universal uh, identity uh, uh, card, the Aadhaar card in India. This may seem trivial in a society like the, uh, like the UK, but uh, it had, uh, it's had enormous effects because literally the issue, other than the identity of an individual as a voter, the, uh, uh, the legal identity or the personal identity of millions of Indians was not something that they could prove. And the, uh, uh, the Aadhaar card, as we call it, then, and the data associated with it, has become a very powerful uh, machinery for the uh, delivery of uh, all kinds of services on public platforms starting from financial services uh, and then uh, continuing to uh, uh, the uh, uh, the delivery of health benefits, uh, the impact of which has been to allow delivery at scale of a number of um, uh, missing elements uh, uh, in, uh, in the lives of... Um, particularly the poor uh, uh, in, in, in India. Now, uh, let me now turn to, uh, to the G20, uh, a little bit about what the G20 is, what it means to be president of, of the G20, and how India is uh, exploiting its, um, uh, its uh, chair of uh, chairmanship of uh, the G20. So firstly, uh, about the G20, um, uh, the G20 is uh, known for its uh, summit of leaders because uh, it is an entity that meets um, um, at, at the leader level these days once a year. But uh, underneath it, is uh, a, a large structure of working groups. Um, since there are 19 countries, the 20th is actually the um, uh, it is the European Union, which does not hold the presidency. Um, 
this was a institution that was created uh, under the leadership initially of uh, the United States and Canada uh, at a time of financial crisis. Uh, first in, uh, in 99, but was escalated to the leader level in uh, 2000 and, um, uh, 2008. Um, members hold the presidency by rotation. And this is the first time that India uh, has come to lead, uh, has come to hold the presidency. And as you know, uh, uh, it is a difficult moment in the uh, in the global economy because uh, the G20 was not particularly effective in responding to the COVID crisis followed upon by uh, the uh, consequences of the war in um, uh, in uh, uh, between Russia and uh, and Ukraine India has communicated uh, its uh, its goals for the G20 uh, based uh, you know on on uh, derived from its uh, slogan uh, which is that uh, one planet, uh, one future, one family. Mother Steve from Northwood Memorial, please uh, join us. Uh, so we're really pleased that uh, Lord Kerman Memorial can also join us because, as Mr. Barry said, he was instrumental in helping create this location for us to welcome Mr. Barry. Uh, thank you for him joining us. Pleasure. He's also and visiting executive residence at uh, Said School and many important positions inside the UK, having been also the president of the British Confederation of Industry and currently also the seventh chancellor of the University of Bangalore. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. So uh, I have the pleasure of uh, asking a few questions, but I also want to be fair to all of our viewers online. So for viewers online, you probably see the quote menti.com. Uh, feel free to enter your questions on that. Uh, if you feel comfortable, we'd love it if you mention your name and also location. And those questions will be routed to me on my mobile. We have also some members in the audience out here. Please raise your hand. We're happy to take some questions from them. So let me for, uh, perhaps uh, begin with a question for you, Mr. Berry. So clearly, India has been. Hello, it's a bright spot in global economic development. What can the world expect from India today as India is heading towards good development targets, precedence of G20? So what can we expect from India's role in the world? Um, what? Uh, I think there is um, a question of how uh, the world will be impacted if India continues on a particular trajectory. And then there's the question of uh, what India is doing and expects to do as a responsible global citizen. The two are linked, but they're not quite the same. And if I could, um, you know, structure my response um, uh, accordingly. Um, Prime Minister Modi has has uh, set the challenge for the nation, uh, and I mean the nation, nation, states, um, uh, individuals, entrepreneurs that uh, there should be a collective effort to uh, try and uh, move India to uh, to developed country status by 2047, which, you know, would be a hundred years after Indian independence. And uh, let me observe that uh, many, that while India was very poor at the time of independence, it actually had a reasonably sophisticated um, 
bureaucratic structure, transport structure, it was one of the major industrial powers. So at one level, um, for us from then to have needed 100 years to become a developed nation um, uh, is possibly an, in, an indictment of, uh, of um, past government, or of past uh, uh, policies. And so there's um, a, a, a need to, uh, as it were, hurry up now. But we're attempting to do this, or will be attempting to do this, uh, in a rather altered government, uh, a global environment from, uh, from the past, particularly in respect of decarbonization and energy. And so to one answer to your question is what the world can expect from India is uh, to, I won't use the term blaze a path, but to uh, explore how you can develop under a decarbonization constraint uh, and uh, that has many dimensions to it, both positive and negative. The positive dimensions are that much of the infrastructure that is needed uh, is yet to be built, so we can use modern technologies. There's not a stranded asset kind of issue, so that's a positive. The negative is that uh, a lot of the cheapest energy sources uh, uh, generate carbon, particularly coal. Okay, so rich countries got rich by doing two things. One is, uh, you know, uh, basically clearing their forests and uh, uh, using coal in abundance, and therefore resulting in the the stock of CO two in the air being what it is. <laughs> India has signed up to the challenge of uh, using new technology to uh, try and achieve similar uh, quality of life uh, following a different path. If it succeeds, and I hope it will succeed, and there's plenty of conviction between uh, behind the trajectory that it's uh, intending to follow, um, uh, that is a game changer, I think. Uh, which is not to say that uh, by then uh, China would not be uh, equally green, maybe even more so. So I would say that's what um, uh, what is at stake for the world in India's aspirations and trajectory. I think uh, the second response I had uh, was has been reflected actually in the last. <laughs> several years uh, in terms of India's uh, engagement with, um, you know, with, with the less fortunate um, uh, or the less sophist sophisticated, whatever. Uh, a few examples. Uh, of course, India has been an important part of UN peacekeeping for, uh, for uh, forces for a long time. Second, uh, it was, while it could, I mean, uh, early on, more generous with the uh, distribution of vaccines uh, when, uh, when they were needed, because it is an important vaccine producer, even as uh, recently as, even as contemporaneously as the uh, Turkish earthquake, um, India has been, I think, one of the fastest countries to get support there. So I, uh, I think these are two dimensions of India being a, a responsive global citizen while being a source of dynamism. There's one additional dimension that is perhaps worth mentioning uh, just by the accident of demography. Uh, which is that um, uh, India will be the source 
of a large proportion, for a while, a large proportion of the growth in the professional labor force of the world, just because of the difference in its demographics. Um, and this will have an impact on institutions like this, multinationals. Uh, so uh, I think that over the next 20 years, to cite a slogan that uh, was used um, at Davos once uh, by, by the Indian contingent, you're, it's probable that you're going to see India everywhere. With that, you're very well with the <clears throat> placards of that everywhere. Uh, we are starting to receive questions online already. And uh, let me just pose a question. I'll come to you in a second, okay, in, in a few minutes. And maybe I'll come to you, Lord Billamoria, for this question from David Hall Matthews. And the question really is, how relevant is the G20 right now when so many of the G7 countries are plowing their own furrow? That's the question. Great. Well, um, before I answer that, I, I, I should, uh, in the House of Lords, I would declare my interest. Um, and I must declare my interest that I'm a, a graduate of the other place. Um, and <laughs> so uh, I'm a graduate of the other place. I'm, I'm a fellow of my, my, my college there, Sydney Sussex, and our sister college here, St. John's. Uh, and which I've been privileged to visit. Um, I'm also a former chair of the Cambridge Judge Business School uh, for five years, and I'm a fellow there. And then more recently, I'm a fellow at Kellogg College uh, here at Oxford, and, and also uh, a visiting fellow here at the Side Business School at the Center for the Corporate Reputation. So when I spoke at the Kellogg Gordy a couple of years ago, I, I, I recalled a, a very well-known Indian economist who uh, someone that's very would definitely know in a talk uh, in India a few years ago, he said, you know, we, we, we talk um, as economists and statistics and, and averages. Uh, he said, well, if I have one foot on cold ice and the other foot on hot coals, on average, I'm comfortable. So I have one foot in light blue and another foot in dark blue. Uh, so I'm actually a true blue. Uh, so, <laughs> so to, 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 to answer the question, uh, in fact, when, when, when you were answering the, que the previous question that uh, you, put, you put, put across, uh, I was president of the Confederation of British Industry, the equivalent of the CII in India. Um, and in the B7 before the G7, we met in, in Berlin and we had a meeting with Olaf Scholz in the lead up to, to Germany hosting the G7. And it just shows how instrumental when you're in that position holding the presidency of the G7 or the G20. At that time, the Ukrainian ambassador here in the UK, who'd become a good friend, I'd worked very closely with humanitarian aid for Ukraine with British industry. And he pointed out to me in May last year, Karen, I don't think the world has woken up to the fact that our ports have been taken over by the Russians. We have one port left, Odessa, and Odessa's mind and we have Russian submarines on the other side. We can't get anything out of Odessa. Unless that port is opened up, millions of people are going to starve because we can't get the grain out over land. And Ukraine being the food basket of the world, or one of the food baskets, um, people will starve. So I followed up straight away in Parliament. I got a chance to speak about it. David Beasley, the head of the UN Food Program, at that very moment said 47 million people are in threat of starvation if that port is not unblocked. And I brought this up with Olaf Scholz face to face. He then brought it up at the G7. That then <laughs> led to Turkey and the United Nations working together with Russia, and they agreed to back off and allow the ships to float. So that one thing, um, that one major initiative that came out of the G7, uh, I think has, has gonna save many, many lives. Uh, so it's a very powerful position to be in. And I think for India to be in this position, uh, presidents of G20, at this time in history, when we've come out of a global pandemic, we've then got this sad war in Ukraine, the world has been in a crisis one after the other. I would say the biggest global crisis since the Second World War. And here's a country, as you said, that is a, a bright spot. In, in we, I mean, we, we are barely, we're meant to be in recession. We've just heard we're not in recession. Well, we're predicted to grow this year at 0.7%. India's predicted to grow this year at 6.5%, 7%. I mean, it's a, it's a different league. Um, and so in that strong position, 
with, you said, 400 million people alleviated from poverty, uh, with the per capita GDP going up, with your forecast from 1940 to be in 100 years in 2047 to be a developed country, another target you have is within 25 years, India uh, to, to have a GDP of $32 trillion, um, making it the second largest economy in the world. And I spoke in a debate on Ukraine yesterday in the, in the House of Lords, and one of the points I made was looking ahead, looking ahead of the world order, you have two superpowers in the world today. One is the United States of America, and the other one, whether we like it or not, is China. But looking ahead, we've got India that is emerging and will be a superpower. And I think the closer the relationship that India can have with countries like the UK um, going forward, is going to have a huge, huge influence. So India's in a very powerful position to take a leadership role in an increasing way over the coming years and decades. Without being unfair to other questioners, may I want to respond on the G the G20 uh, issue? Uh, as it happened uh, uh, when I was in the think tank world, um, I I spent a fair amount of time uh, not uh, uh, not related with either my present job or the Indian presidency assessing uh, the G20 in the um, uh, in the decade uh, uh, from 2008 to 2018. This was a contribution at the time of the Buenos Aires uh, summit. Um, and uh, got the opportunity to interview various actors in the G20. So uh, at that time, and this is why the performance in the last two years has been disappointing. At that time, my conclusion was um, that firstly, uh, it is at least a spare tire, which these days even Mercedes doesn't provide, but it is at least a spare tire in uh, global coordination uh, because uh, it softens human relationships. And that was the great power of the G7, is the great power of the G7. Uh, as the old song said, who are you going to call? And the fact that Prime Minister Modi is now comfortable picking up the the phone to uh, people who become his peers, I don't think you can minimize the importance of that. And second, uh, it may seem a trivial issue, but apparently is important, and its importance was symbolized by uh, uh, this handshake between President Biden and President Xi, uh, you know, it takes a huge effort to schedule bilateral meetings at a summit level. There's a lot of hoopla, there's a lot of, uh, you know, protocol, etc. To have one date in the calendar where the big, the you know, the good and the great know that they can transact business, um, in an interconnected world, I think, uh, uh, you know, possibly you would have to invent it. So, uh, the, and then, uh, and then there is this important, um, if intangible, uh, outcome of political consensus. So I think the political consensus, as Lord Billamoria has said, on on food, it's also name and shame. You know, I think that Turkey and Russia, uh, both members of the G20, uh, there was a context within which they could be lobbied by their G20 peers. So uh, uh, it, these are uh, so, soft dimensions, but I would say that in a world in churn, uh, it would be silly to discard them. Well, I think you've both provided excellent examples of the importance of G20 and also the importance of India in this process. Let's take a question from Lord. Just say your name. The microphone is there. So uh, I'm Anuja, and uh, I have worked with Niti Aayog and Planning Commission as a consultant previously, and uh, right now I'm a student of Global Healthcare Leadership uh, inside business school. So my simple question here is that there, are, you know, you talked about uh, environment as well as uh, vaccine policy that the, that the country adopted. Now, 
with the economic crisis that the world is right now facing, how, as a G20 leader, does India plan to seek consent on something like environment when Mr. Modi in the leadership? Well, two quick, uh, may I? Uh, two quick responses. Uh, one is, uh, and I make this point uh, where, wherever I can uh, in um, in the UK, uh, I mean, there is a sense in India, rightly or wrongly, that uh, the way uh, COP26, 20, uh, right? Or Glasgow was 26? 26. Yeah. That, that the way in which the UK press uh, represented India's position in the conclusion of COP26 was somewhat unfair, uh, and that, frankly, India has very powerful green credentials, uh, notwithstanding uh, the, the fact that uh, it's a much less affluent country uh, than, uh, than the G7 countries, and indeed... Uh, 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 much less aff affluent than all other members of the G20. Uh, so against that background, uh, we need to be clear that Prime Minister Modi is an absolute evangelist for sustainability, but he interprets uh, that perhaps more broadly than um, uh, than the normal formulation, which uh, at least in the G7 has just been mitigation, mitigation, mitigation. Uh, his formulation is that, and he, he does this as a very successful politician, and you know we've seen that both in Europe and here, uh, when there was a need to, when energy prices skyrocketed, that basically all kinds of emergency action uh, had to be taken. So, uh, the uh, the develop that uh, again uh, the G twenty is uh, what we might call a holistic body looking at growth and development across the board, and therefore something called the Sustainable Development Goals is a better framework for thinking about it than you know, something like the, the COPs, which are exclusively focused on, just on climate change. But the point I wanted to make was that uh, equipping the world to, to deliver on the climate challenge is a central focus of this G20. But the focus is uh, on, di on several dimensions, but most importantly, on financing the energy transition. And so uh, it's become increasingly clear that uh, what the energy transition will need, particularly uh, uh, in the South, but more, uh, in emerging markets, is a big investment push. That investment push will need uh, uh, if, uh, cheaper financing than commercial terms. And the question of uh, what is the world's Marshall Plan for dealing with a whole range of environmental stresses, including mitigation and adaptation, that's the central issue on the table. How to reconcile that with legitimate development aspiration. And then the whole apparatus of the various working groups, etc., it will be deployed towards uh, towards that uh, that goal. I don't know if that answers your your question, but uh, maybe we need to move on. Lord Bilamore, would you like to comment on the, the number of questions for the yeah. climate dimension? Yeah. So just very very just to build on what Ms. Ferry just said, which is spot on. In 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 Parliament, you said day before yesterday how India is committed to net zero by 2070. Uh, but but the huge opportunity here, and this is where G20, to your point, of bringing everyone together is the op opportunity for everyone to work together. Now, the, the phasing out and phasing down was a big issue at COP26, but the reality is it's being phased down. And I always say it's being unrealistic to, it's a transition, it's not an on-off switch. We can't just suddenly switch from, for, from you know, uh, fossil fuels to, to alternative. It's got to be a transition. The big opportunity is India is a leader in solar power. 
we here in the UK leaders in wind power. We've got huge now technology in heat. I chaired the Heat Commission. Hydrogen, India's made in its budget an absolute declared priority of research in hydrogen. Birmingham University, yes, and production. So uh, Birmingham University, where I'm chancellor, at COP26, we showcased the world's first retrofitted hydrogen-powered train. Now, the potential for that is huge. We're collaborating with the Indian railways as well. So that sharing of technology, countries like India can take leadership in, I think there's enormous potential. I think in the climate, as you both of you correctly identified, you know, there are both challenges and opportunities. And by working together is the best benefit. The finance point that Mr. Barry made, very important. Again, London being such an important financial center, climate finance, again, partnering with countries like India uh, is an, uh, another big opportunity. Great. Can we wait for the, mic for the microphone to come to the front? And then, yes, please. Introduce yourself and just the name and brief question. Yeah. Um, good evening. Um, Mr. Berry, um, I think I should, Siddharth, Siddharth Sethi, I think I'll uh, begin by saying that as the world heads into recession, India is fairly well insulated and uh, very well set up for growth. So I think um, I think the government and the Nitya Yoga has done a great job over the last many, many years and that's really paying off. My question is uh, around uh, the fact that in the world we talk about four trends and we call it the four Ds. So it's decarbonization that we spoke about, digitalization, there's a demographic uh, trend which is happening, aging population and deglobalization. And my question is around deglobalization. And I ask this because I feel that uh, India is presented by a golden opportunity and a potential to leapfrog China. So I would ask you, how are we as a country equipping ourselves to be able to deal with this trend and effectively take advantage of this trend? And in the end, I would say I will start a house as well. And that you will get. Oh, right. Um, do I do leapfrogging? Uh, I'm not sure. So, um, uh, there's an opportunity to, av to learn from and avoid mistakes. And so... Uh, mm one could characterize the traditional development path as being uh, damaged and then rebuilt, okay? And there's a, a, a concept called the environmental... So what we know is that rich countries are typically... Uh, uh, leave... Uh, 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 less of uh, are, are better at protecting the environment than poor countries okay uh, and now the issue really becomes as I said earlier uh, uh, how do we uh, how do we follow a, a somewhat different path now uh, you have two questions. You have the question of leapfrogging and the question of China. Uh, and I'm not sure that they are necessarily, uh, the answers are necessarily the same. So on China, I think uh, the world, and you know, I know that uh, we have our very important political differences with China, but as a student of economics, uh, what I have to observe is that China was responsible for a massive, what an economist would call, positive terms of trade shock for the global economy over the last 15 years and work uh, that has been done uh, by, uh, uh, what was his name at LSE. Uh, so I think a lot of the increases in standard, real standards of living that we have seen, I know there have been employment consequences over the last 15 years, has been because China has been uh, such an efficient producer of tradable goods. Okay, So we, uh, we have all benefited from that. It's a different matter that uh, 
some of this economic interdependence is being weaponized now and what have you. Why, does, why is that relevant to your question? Why that's relevant to your question is that uh, at, if India itself wishes to become a efficient, low-cost producer, uh, it must look to the low-cost sources of inputs and like rightly or wrongly, or like it or not, maybe is the better way to put it, uh, those are and will continue to be from China. But as Chinese costs rise, uh, that vacates space, and that's the space that India should attempt to occupy in a number of fields. Okay, uh, So that's the China issue, but there's a def different dimension to the China issue, which is that everybody's become a bit more wary of all your eggs in one basket. And yes, there is therefore a China plus one opportunity out there. Uh, and I think it's important to observe that India is the only large economy with sufficient scale uh, to, to be uh, serious. But the reality is at the moment, probably Vietnam is doing better than we are on on manufacturers, but um, uh, but uh, uh, we sh should have the opportunity to operate at a different scale. I just wanted to say that we I wouldn't assume that we are in recession, and I wouldn't assume that we are deglobalizing. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot more either you know dynamism or inertia in the system, and uh, yes. Some cautious bets are being made by multinationals uh, because of the geopolitical uh, difficulties between the U.S. and China. But I'm not sure that those are necessarily echoed in the relationship between Europe and China. So I think that this, uh, I mean, certain industries where the U.S. is the leader are going to be forced to make uh, make choices. So I would say that it's not a question of leapfrogging. It is now uh, a question of a different development path and putting in place incentives and policies of a kind that we saw in our last budget, which guides the economy in that uh, in that direction. Lord Billimori, would you have something to add on this? Well, the, the, the point is, I mean, China, the trade that, uh, just to build on what Ms. Berry said, Trade that India does with, with China is about $140, $150 billion. It's, a lot of it is one way, and it's much more, over 110 of that is importing from China. Similarly, the UK, the trade that we do with China, with all the issues we have with China, is almost 100 billion pounds. So the, you know, you, you, it is a country that is there, that is, as I said earlier, is a superpower now, is something that we have to deal with. But I think India's growth path is going to be absolutely amazing. The rate at which it's going, the entrepreneurial spirit that has been unleashed in India, combined with the educational side of things that's going, with India opening up so rapidly, uh, with the infrastructure investments that have taken place, as long as it can carry on attracting inward investment as well with the states. I mean, the other aspect of your job is one of the most challenging jobs because you're in the center dealing with 29 states and union territories. Each one, as you say, the size of huge countries, um, and, to, and to coordinate that from the center to try and deal with that. But the positive is the states competing with each other. Uh, and that's actually a, a positive dynamic for an, an investor coming in from the outside. So I think India harnessing that going forward is, and I agree, leapfrogging is maybe not the right term, but certainly India could and should go ahead of China in a, in a much more democratically robust way uh, that is more friendly to dealing with the whole world and partnering with the whole world. And we now, by the way, in the UK, we don't talk about the Asia-Pacific anymore. We talk about the Indo-Pacific. It literally is part of our integrated strategies that's been published by the UK government recently. We've got a tilt to the Indo-Pacific. That's how important India, India is to a country like the UK. I actually find impressive, and I, I've been visiting India, you know, several times every year for the last 30 years, and the culture has changed. 
if I look at the young people in India, they're much more entrepreneurial right now. And also, Admire, I think what you said, you use some words, change at scale, driven by digital platforms. And that's amazing because, you know, in, in digital world, that's sort of two worlds. One is the American way and the Chinese way, but both are driven by large walled gardens of these large tech companies. And India is having a much more bottom-up democratic way of digitalization, which is showing a different way. And the different way, I think, is what is interesting in terms of can it drive large-scale change. And the success of the payment system is one thing which is clearly, you know, showing that that can happen. I saw there was a hand back there. Please, uh, microphone. Hi, I'm Abhishek Gupta. I'm from Delhi, so thank you for making me feel at home today. Uh, my question is that India is slowly moving from make in India to invent in India. So how do you think the G20 summit will help accelerate the goals, both on the invent side and also on the production side? Um, well, let me, uh, in a sense, because I my prepared remarks uh, on the G20 uh, faltered, but let me just say that uh, uh, as part of uh, the challenge of helping the developing world recover from the stumbles of internal and global of COVID, uh, India certainly is wishing to both showcase and share uh, the point that, uh, uh, that Dean Dutta have stressed which is that you don't have to depend on, and this is not very popular with, uh, with uh, the fangs, uh, with, the, with the larger, mm -hmm. you don't have to depend on uh, walled garden platforms. And that indeed you are going to get, uh, you can realize significant economic development uh, benefits at, uh, lower cost through public digital platforms okay so now uh, your question uh, was about both invention and production let me start with invention uh, so uh, Niti Aayog houses something called the Atal Innovation Mission uh, which is uh, inculcating a, uh, a uh, an innovation culture, if that's the right term, right from house school, uh, high schools. So there is the concept of tinkering labs um, uh, at the school level, which are sustained and supported by this mission, which has its own budget outside NITI. But more importantly, it has uh, systematized and supported uh, uh, so-called incubators uh, in uh, uh, in a variety of institutions and in a variety of fields. And it turns out, I mean, I wasn't aware of this before I got to Niti, that this is commonplace in, uh, in technologic or innovation-rich societies, be it Finland, be it... Uh, Silicon Valley, so uh, that uh, move from innovation being a hit or miss process, depending on either the individual inventor or, uh, or, or the large corporation, to the notion that there is a, a life cycle of innovation that government can support through incubators, and all of this is finding expression in the G20 uh, through there being, uh, we've talked, we've heard about the business 20, there's now going to be a startup 20. And India at the moment is the third largest uh, startup e ecosystem in the world. And there are about 80,000 registered startups. Uh, and there is actually a more of an established financing ecosystem for startups than we actually have for for uh, external support for climate change. It's paradoxical, but, but that's the reality. Now, on make in India, uh, this has had a checkered history. Uh, and I would say that economists have not been 
particularly helpful to our policymakers and politicians because uh, they keep saying, well, you need to do a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, and the penny will drop. And frankly, uh, it it hasn't, and it uh, doesn't, and it's it is a little bit of a puzzle. But uh, I would like to just uh, because I think we're nearing the end of our time, uh, talk a little bit about not how manufacturing, but why manufacturing. Um, there is the conventional development view, which is that the the way in which you increase productivity uh, of the economy as a whole or neighbor and get uh, it up, ride the development escalator is by moving labor from agriculture to industry. And that, that is happening. But uh, uh, there's a lot of recent research which suggests that manufacturing is becoming uh, uh, much more labor saving. And so uh, it, even in um, in industries like textiles, etc., it's not going to generate the, quite the employment dividend that it had in the past. So my own interpretation of why India is still very, and the Prime Minister, is still very passionate about manufacturing is that it is as much to do really with national security, that uh, if you are to have a viable defense manufacturing business, uh, you need it needs to rest on... Uh, on the pillars of a sophisticated manufacturing uh, uh, for uh, it, it can't be self it can't be isolated and so creating a whole network of uh, of uh, sophisticated manufacturing uh, will need to uh, will need a certain amount of import substitution and so that is the logic uh, behind our production-linked incentive schemes. Um, having said which, uh, you know, uh, India uh, is reasonably well integrated into engineering supply chains, and now it's a question of really increasing the sophistication and scale of those. I'm mindful of the time. So yeah, so we're very brief. From you on we're uh, manufacturing. No, because that's a similar story. We're, we're, we're out of time, and uh, Amish, we, I know we've got to go. So I'll just very, very quickly, it's a very good question that you've, you've asked, and it's, I believe that here in the UK, we, we neglected having a, a balanced economy. Our manufacturing went down from 30% of GDP in the 1970s to 10% of GDP. We're predominantly service economy, as is India, um, but India at least has a target of 20, 25% of GDP in manufacturing. I think it's good to have that target. We've neglected, for example, nuclear power. We used to be much better at nuclear power than we are now. Now we're waking up, to, and with Rolls-Royce, we have these small modular reactors that we might be setting up across the country. So I think you've got to look ahead with these things, with the way of being self-reliant, uh, but also in manufacturing is always great for exports as well. And then innovation, a lot of what Mr. Berry said now is, from, is music to my ears, to have tinkering labs and schools. I mean, I, 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 every year I give a lecture at Wickham Abbey, which is one of our most academic schools in the country. And they have two days compulsory in the lower sixth form. So when you're about 17 years old, two days compulsory to experience entrepreneurship, business, finance, management. Now, if every school in the country spent two days at school being exposed to it, what a difference that would make. And the final point I make is with innovation, you need to invest in R&D and innovation. And that needs to be driven by the government. Here in the UK, we underinvest. We're a very innovative country. We only spend 1.7% of GDP on R&D and innovation. Germany, 3.1%. America, 3.2%. Israel is off the charts. If we, and if, South Korea. If, if we spend just 1% more of GDP in the UK, that's over 20 billion pounds more a year going into R&D and innovation. Just imagine what a difference that would make. So there's, there is no shortcut. And in India, with, um, with, with, with unicorns is one of the highest number of unicorns in the world. As is this little country, the UK, less than 1% world population, we have one of the highest number of unicorns as well. And that's a good indicator of innovation. Very pleased that this wonderful discussion is ending on the innovation because that's very clear to my heart. Do the innovation index. India has done very well on that. It's ranked in the 40th right. The world is going up consistently. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Barry, for uh, joining us. Thank you. And I'm thank sorry uh, at, about faltering at the beginning, but I thank need you. the comments. The comments and insights were excellent. Thank you very much, Lord Billimore. Thank you. And I think what I would say are two things. First of all, thank you for all the great leadership you're showing in Niti Aayog. I think it's very important for all of us inside the country, outside the country, other countries. Yeah, yeah. And second is, please build stronger links in Oxford and Niti Aayog in India. So we are there. We are there to come. Thank you. And thanks all of you for being here and those online. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs>